Well, good morning and welcome to Theological Equipping class. Hope that you are doing well as we finish up Theological Equipping. We've got this lesson and then one next week. This lesson will be on Buddhism and then the one next week will be on uh, non-Christian Judaism. And uh, then we'll be done for this little series on apologetics and world religions. And then we'll take a break for the summer and then we will be back next semester talking about spicy social and political theology issues. So that one should be uh, a lot of fun and extremely relevant for what uh, the U.S. is going through and will continue going through, especially in a, uh, an election year uh, when we are going to have to vote on some of these kinds of issues. Well, today we're going to be talking about Buddhism and uh, getting into what they believe and why and these kind of things. So first, I am not a Buddhist scholar. I know that surprises you. But uh, I'm not a Buddhist scholar. I, uh, my training is in Christian theology, but I will try to do my best in explaining what Buddhism believes and why. And I will mispronounce a ton of names and a ton of words. Why? Because I don't speak uh, Nepalese or Hindi or any of these kind of languages that a lot of people that are Buddhists speak. And so please don't dismiss the content of what I'm saying. If you're some Buddhist listening to this in the future, and you hear me say something uh, where I mispronounce a word, please don't think I'm stupid. Please don't disregard the content of what I'm saying just because I didn't pronounce it right. We're mainly concerned here with content. Now, let me say something about what we've been doing in uh, theological equipping as we've been going over the different world religions. We have not done what a lot of people do when they teach apologetics, which is to give you some sort of quick five ways to share the gospel with a Hindu. Or here are five steps to trick a Muslim into believing the Bible so they'll receive Christ and reject Muhammad or something like that. The reason we haven't done that is because we don't think that is actually the best way to do apologetics. That was cutesy maybe 70 years ago where you would try to share the gospel with somebody in an elevator in 30 seconds. But uh, the world is much more complex and people's ideologies are much more complex and people respond better to relationship. So what we'd rather do is we'd rather teach you how to understand another worldview and then you befriend somebody with that worldview, and then you're able to share the gospel in your own language. No gimmicks, no tricks, no tracks, nothing like that. Just learning somebody's worldview and learning how to think about that from a Christian worldview. You'll notice we did apologetics defending the faith, and then when we got into different world religions, we haven't been just giving you, just say this one line to you know, a Jehovah's Witness or whatever. Rather, we're trying to let you see the whole system so that when you sit down with somebody of another religion, you can really work through the issues. You can know that when they say God, they don't mean the same thing you do. Or when they say sin, they don't mean the same thing that you do. So keep that in mind as we get into this lesson. So first, let's give a definition of Buddhism. We all know Buddhism, right? It's that little pudgy guy when you walk into a Chinese restaurant that's there and he's gold. What is this about? Who is the Buddha? What is Buddhism about? Here's the definition. A religion and philosophy that developed from the teachings of the Buddha, the Buddha. We'll talk about who that is in a second a teacher who lived in northern India sometime between the mid-6th and mid-4th centuries BC, which is the dominant religion in many Asian countries. I'm gonna read that again. A religion and philosophy that developed from the teachings of the Buddha, a teacher who lived in northern India sometime between the mid-6th and the mid-4th centuries BC, which is the dominant religion in many Asian countries, okay? Now, before we get into some of the tenets of Buddhism, Buddhism, like Hinduism, 
has many different and even contradictory forms. So if you've not gotten a chance to listen to Jeff's lecture last week on Hinduism, you really should listen to that almost as a primer to understand Buddhism because there is a lot of relationship between the two. Uh, But one of the things that Jeff mentioned was that there are a a bunch of different kinds of Hinduism and some of them are even contradictory to other ones, right? And the same thing is true in Buddhism. One person can be a Buddhist and believe something completely different than another person who's a Buddhist, but they'll have certain strands that run throughout the system. And so keep that in mind uh, as we go through this lesson. A great way to explain Buddhism before we get into the tenets is to say that Buddhism is really a blend of elements from Hinduism, Gnosticism, and Aristotelian ethics, okay? It's really a blending of elements from Hinduism, Gnosticism and Aristotelian ethics. Hinduism, we'll see those things in a moment. Again, we just mentioned Jeff did a whole lesson on Hinduism. What is Gnosticism? Gnosticism is a a term actually for a movement that's kind of a heresy going on in the early church, which taught that the physical world is bad, and so our goal is to get away from bodily desire and what's physical and fleshly and these kind of things, and through secret knowledge. Gnosko is the, the Greek uh, verb that, says, that means I know, or gnosis is the word for knowledge. Through secret knowledge, we can ascend into a higher plane and obtain salvation, which is release from what is physical, etc. You see a lot of those elements in Buddhism. It's almost an Asian form of Gnosticism. Now, not that they've read Gnostic writings, uh, but this, uh, this is a similar way of thinking as in Gnosticism. And then Aristotelian ethics. Again, many Buddhists have not read Aristotle. Aristotle is a Western thinker. He's gonna think in a very different way uh, than someone of an Eastern religion, but we'll talk about later on in this lesson what is similar in Buddhism to Aristotelian ethics. But let's start with an introduction. Here we go. <clears throat> Buddhism is one of the world's major religions. By the way, there are five of them. Five major religions in the world. That's Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and does anybody know the last one? I can't remember it now either as we go. I can't remember what the other one is. Wait for it, it'll come to me. Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism. That's the one we're doing next week that I'm teaching on. You would think that I wouldn't forget that one, okay? but, uh, but it's one of the smaller ones. So uh, we'll talk about that, uh, that next week. Buddhism is one of the world's major religions. It has somewhere between 350 and 470 million followers, okay? So it is, uh, it is pretty big. Now, many celebrities, especially in the U.S., claim to be Buddhist, including Richard Gere, Phil Jackson, the coach of the, uh, the Bulls when Michael Jordan was at his prime, George Lucas, the Star Wars guy. You wonder where he got all that force and Jedi stuff from Buddhism. Mark Zuckerberg, the uh, founder of Facebook, Brad Pitt, Steven Seagal, Tina Turner, Orlando Bloom, Tiger Woods, and many others. Now, one of the things that's really ironic about how many uh, celebrities identify as Buddhism is one of the things that Buddhism teaches is to get away from worldliness, to get away from money and possessions and fame, and to try to reach a higher plane. So there's a, a lot of these people are culturally Buddhist because it's cool. They like to do yoga and they like to meditate, but they're not really followers of Buddha. It was founded by a guy named Siddhartha Gautama, okay? Siddhartha Gautama who's termed the Buddha. I'll tell you why in a second. The term Buddha means enlightened or awakened. So his name is Siddhartha Gautama, and he uh, is called Buddha because that term means enlightened or awakened. His teachings are called Dharma. That's a little bit different than in Hinduism. The monks and nuns that followed Buddha are called the Sangha, okay, the Sangha. And there is debate on when he actually lived. Now, this is interesting. There's about a 100-year period where he could have lived uh, or when he could have lived on which scholars disagree. So we actually don't know the exact time in which he lived. 
The leading monk in Tibetan Buddhism is called the Dalai Lama. If you've ever wondered, who's the Dalai Lama? Who's that really happy, smiley guy promoting world peace and going on talk shows and these kind of things? Well, a Dalai Lama is thought to be a reincarnation of past, a past Dalai Lama who voluntarily has come to help humanity. Okay, so he's no just mere sage. He's a reincarnation of a past Dalai Lama, this leading figure in a certain type of Buddhism that has come to help humanity by teaching us about Buddhism and teaching us uh, how to have peace, okay? Now, there is not only one Buddha. That's interesting in Buddhism because you can become a Buddha too if you become awakened. So there's not just one. He, he's the first Buddha, if you wanna say it that way, but you can be a Buddha too, which reminds me of a funny T-shirt I saw which says this. I have the body of a god. Unfortunately, it's a Buddha. Now, Buddha's not te technically a god, but it's a great t-shirt. But that's the idea, that you too can become a Buddha. So let's talk a little bit about the history of the movement. Siddhartha Gautama was born as a prince in Nepal over 2,500 years ago to a wealthy family. His dad was an Indian warrior king. He married at the age of 16 and he had a son. Now, let me tell you why I love talking about his son. I had to talk to one of our deacons here, a guy named Rahul Gaba, because he, uh, he got saved out of Hinduism, but he also knows some about Buddhism because the movements are linked. And uh, he's the one that told me that uh, Buddha's son is named Rahul, his name. So, which I thought that was fun. So I wanted to mention that. After becoming bored with a life of comfort, at about the age of 29, he began to venture out from the palace, okay? This is kind of, if you think of from the scene, uh, the scene from the movie Aladdin, where the princess goes out of the palace and she walks around the city and she actually, you know, almost gets her arm chopped off because she stole an apple or whatever it is, gave an apple away to a kid. That's kind of the thing. He was trapped up in the palace and he just had a life of luxury and then he decides to wander out from the palace and he encounters a few things that affect him. First, he encounters an old man who is bent over with age. That's not something he's used to. Supposedly, his dad did a really good job of trying to protect him from the evil that's in the world. He was a very uh, repressed and suppressed uh, as a child. So he found an old man. He found an ill man, someone who's sick. He saw a corpse and he met a man who was an ascetic. Again, an ascetic is somebody who lives kind of like a monk uh, and they don't partake in much bodily pleasure and they're very harsh treatment of the body and very uh, trying to detach themselves from worldly comforts. From those experiences, he discovered that suffering is the primary problem of mankind. Now that seems pretty obvious, I think, to most of us, but suffering is bad. This is something that he discovered, uh, which he hadn't experienced as much in the palace. <clears throat> and what he did after that experience is he renounced his life as a prince and became a monk. He first tried to live a life of asceticism, okay? So he joined a group of ascetics and tried to be an ascetic monk and uh, there were two problems with it. First of all, it did not answer his question about human suffering. You, you, you realize even when you are an ascetic, you still suffer and other people suffer. So it doesn't deal with the issue of human suffering. And also, because of his harsh treatment of the body and not eating food, he passed out. One time he passed out because of lack of food. And so he thought, there's gotta be a better way than passing out and going through all this suffering to end suffering. So one day, while meditating under a tree called a Bodhi tree, his mind was peaceful like a lake on a windless day. However, a demon named Mara tempted him. Well, we all know how that is, right? Sometimes it's hot in Texas, and so we try to sit under a tree and just get a, get a little break, get a little breeze, sit in the shade, but there's always that pesky demon Mara who's coming and bugging us while we're trying to chill. And this demon Mara tempted him towards desire, fear, 
pride, thirst, and passion. The funniest one in there for me is thirst, okay? Out of all the things you can be tempted towards, that's one of the things. But after overcoming the demon and retaining his peaceful mind, he found enlightenment and achieved salvation. Now here's what you need to understand about a Buddhist idea of salvation. It's not about being reconciled to a personal God that you've offended who's a trinity, like in Christianity. Salvation means inner peace and truth, where you have transcended the things that ail us, we'll talk about what that is in a second, and you have reached this state of enlightenment. Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, spent the rest of his life traveling around teaching his newfound wisdom, okay? That's the story of, about how, of how Buddhism began. Let's talk about some of the beliefs in Buddhism. First, Buddhists do not follow any type of supreme deity. In this sense, Buddhism is more of a way of life or a spiritual tradition than an actual religion. If you think back to an earlier lecture when Jeff talked about an introduction to religion, he said religions are really hard to define because though everyone is religious, the Bible teaches us that, even the atheist is just suppressing religion, he actually knows it because God's put it in the heart of mankind, that it's really hard to define a religion because if you define it by belief in God, well, Buddhists don't believe in God. They're just humans that become uh, enlightened. And so that can't be the definition of a religion. It's a little bit more complex than that. And it's intimately tied to the idea of worldview. Now, sometimes when you talk about religion, people say, oh, I'm not religious or I'm a secularist or whatever. They don't realize that's not the issue. Everyone has a worldview. Everyone believes something about God, even if you think God doesn't exist. Everybody believes something about what happens to you when you die, even if you think you just become worm food. Everybody thinks that you uh, have some view of uh, ethics and right and wrong, even if you think everything's subjective and we can do whatever we want. Everybody has a worldview. Well, <clears throat> in Buddhism, and this is also similar to, uh, to Hinduism, it is much more of a way of life or a spiritual tradition. Now, in Hinduism, most Hindus are theistic. They believe in a plurality of gods. But as Jeff taught last week, some are atheistic, some are pantheistic. The, the view of God changes in Hinduism. Well, in Buddhism, there's not really the same kind of concept of a supreme deity that we would have, say, in Judaism or Islam or Christianity uh, or even in a polytheistic system like Hindu, uh, Hinduism. Number two, the goal of life is to find inner peace and wisdom through enlightenment. This state is called nirvana, okay? which is not to be confused with the 90s grunge band, which is also great. They, they, they put you on a higher level. They put you in a higher state when you're listening to Smells Like Teen, teen, teen Spirit right before a basketball game or something like that. But uh, that's not what it is. The term nirvana literally means blowing out. And it refers to getting rid of the fires of egocentrism, that's like self-focus, and losing the individual into the universal. It's very similar to uh, something that Jeff mentioned last week called moksha. It's not the same as moksha, but it is related to moksha, this idea uh, of becoming one with the universe, one with the ultimate reality, and uh, getting rid of the fires of selfishness, desire, and uh, self-centeredness. Number three, meditation is used to focus, provide peace, and find truth. It is a helpful practice in reaching nirvana, okay? So uh, why do they meditate so much? It helps you calm your mind. It helps you focus on truth. But for them, it's to reach another plane. It's to try to help them reach nirvana. You have to do a bunch of things to reach nirvana. We're gonna see what those are later, but one of the primary ones is meditating. <clears throat> Number four, suffering is caused by two things, desire and ignorance. Suffering is caused by desire and ignorance. 
Desire consists of things like wanting pleasure, material goods, and immortality. That's bad in Buddhism. Ignorance is the inability to see the world as it really is. So let me define those again. What do they mean when they say suffering is caused by desire and ignorance? Desire consists of things like wanting stuff, pleasure, material goods, immortality, things we all kind of want. And then ignorance is the inability to see the world as it really is. What you're doing when you're not enlightened is you're looking at the world almost like a shadow. You're not looking at the form, to use platonic language, you're just looking at the shadow. Now, when you don't see the world the way it really is, it leads to vices such as greed, envy, hatred, and anger. Okay? So this is, uh, this is really similar, uh, this view of suffering and uh, desire. It's really similar to the German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer. I don't know if you know who Schopenhauer is, but he's kind of like the father of pessimistic philosophy. So he's not the guy you want to invite over to a party because he'll just like weep and cry in the corner and be real goth or whatever. But with Schopenhauer, the idea is that all of the bad problems in the world are caused by desire. And we never are fully satisfied. Everything you think is going to be bad ends up being a lot worse than it is. And everything you think that's going to be good is never as good as you're hoping that it is. And so the only solution is resignation. Giving up in the face of having all this desire. We as humans, we desire so many things, yet nothing seems to satisfy. That is the problem with human suffering with uh, Schopenhauer, who, by the way, was influenced a little bit by Buddhism. Number five, there's this idea in Buddhism, karma, okay? Karma. The idea that for every moral action, there is a corresponding effect. If you do good, you will be happy. And if you do bad, you will not be happy. Also, listen to this next part. The more you do good, the more likely you are to do it again. The more you do bad, the more likely you are to do that again. This is why I said that there's an element here that is similar to the ethics of Aristotle. Uh, Aristotle taught that you can practice virtue just like you practice a sport or practice a musical instrument. We actually have a blog on our website about uh, sanctification and Aristotle, which I'd encourage you to read. If you want to not think lustful thoughts, you have to practice not thinking lustful thoughts and you'll get better at it as you practice. If you want to not be anxious, you'll have to practice not being anxious and you'll become less anxious. You're not just gonna wake up one day and God's taken that away. He could, but he doesn't seem to usually work that way. You have to practice putting sins to death and taking thoughts captive. But there's this idea that the more you do good, the more likely you'll be to do good, the more you do bad, the more you're, you're creating like a spiritual muscle memory when you do good and bad actions. Number six, reincarnation. Reincarnation is an important uh, component in Buddhism. Time is cyclical. That's unlike the Christian worldview where time is linear. In Buddhism, time is cyclical and after death, people will be reincarnated. However, you can end this cycle through reaching nirvana. So this is, again, very similar to Hinduism. Being reincarnated is not actually the end goal. The end goal is to where you don't have to keep living through all these suffering lives and you can reach this higher uh, state of enlightenment. Now, I don't know how to further elaborate on what I'm about to say because, again, I'm not a Buddhist scholar, so I'm just gonna give you the information. You can be reborn into one of three fortunate realms or one of three unfortunate realms. The fortunate realms are gods, demigods, or men, and unfortunate realms are animals, ghosts, or hell. And if you say that last category doesn't fit, I know, I'm just giving you the information. I also realize that uh, there's no supreme deity in Buddhism and yet you can somehow be some sort of reborn demigod. Again, the movement is not completely consistent. It's more of a way of life than it is a Western, logical, no contradiction style uh, religion like you have in something like Christianity, okay? By Western there, by the way, I don't mean American or like a European. Western just means thought that follows Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Christian thought, Roman thought, the, the kind of thing that's happening not in the Far East. 
Number seven, the middle way. Maybe you've heard of this phrase, the middle way. This is a Buddhist idea <clears throat> that uh, where you seek a mean between the extremes of self-indulgence and self-denial. So Buddha discovered that just self-denial doesn't work. You end up passed out under a tree getting attacked by demons. So rather, there has to be some gratification, but what does that look like? You can't be a hedonist, you can't go too far. So there's this uh, balance between self-indulgence and self-denial. Again, a bit like Aristotle's idea of what is called a golden mean. That a lot of times the virtuous action is this balance. So for example, uh, Aristotle will use the, uh, the definition of bravery. Bravery is not where you just run out into battle like a crazy person and just get destroyed, okay? That's not bravery, that's just brashness. But bravery is also not cowardice where you're running away. Bravery is somewhere in the middle. It's where you have this reasoned approach to resisting fear to do your duty. The same thing is true in Buddhism. There's this balance of uh, typically you're looking for moderation. You're looking for this mean, this that mean meaning thing in the middle between two extremes. Number eight, ethics. Buddhism forbids killing living things. So there's this, uh, obviously, this high regard for sacredness of life. Uh, Stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, and using drugs or alcohol, okay? You uh, typically don't have a lot of uh, heavy drinking Buddhists. Some of them are just culturally Buddhist and they will. But something interesting here that I've realized as we've been teaching through the different world religions, for whatever reason, one of the things that false teachers always seem to push is that alcohol is bad. You see that in Islam, you see that in Mormonism, you see that in Buddhism. The devil just doesn't want God's people having fun and he doesn't want us to have a good thing that God made. And so it pops up, whether it's in American fundamentalism uh, or it's one of these other religions. You get that idea also in uh, Buddhism. They forbid killing living things, stealing sexual misconduct, lying, and using drugs. All things that, uh, that uh, could be pretty bad there, but then they also uh, forbid alcohol, which is not. The idea of self, number nine, there is not a permanence to humans, okay? So in Buddhism, we don't have a permanent soul like you think of in uh, Judeo-Christian worldview or an underlying entity, but are rather just a self of transition, a process of continuous change. So it's not that we are really, so what, what are we really? It's not that we're just really a soul or something like that. Rather, what we really are is a process of continuous change. You don't have the same concrete identity of self in Buddhism that you have, again, in Christianity. And then number 10, idolatry. Idolatry. Now listen to this. Though Buddha was not a god, technically, he was just a human, it is common to venerate, offer food to, and even sometimes worship statues of the Buddha, okay? So you will see statues of Buddha, and there's kind of some debate on whether or not that is just a statue or whether or not people venerate it and honor it, and uh, again, it depends on the type of Buddhism, but there, there tends to be, uh, most commonly, some type of veneration of images of uh, Buddha, some people going in so far as to worship using that image. Let's talk about the major texts in uh, Buddhism. The main one, the most important one, is called the Four Noble Truths, okay? That's the big one. If you wanna read a a very authentic Buddhist kind of uh, uh, theology, you've got to read the Four Noble Truths. It's now written down, but it supposedly was originally uh, based on Buddha's preaching. So he's preaching this message and then it gets codified and written down and it becomes what is called the Four Noble Truths. So let's talk about what these four noble truths are. The first is the truth of suffering. The second is the truth of the cause of suffering. The third is the truth of the end of suffering. And the fourth is the truth of the path that leads to the end of suffering. What does that mean? Well, let me just summarize each section. The first section can be summarized simply as this. There is suffering. So if we're starting Buddhism, what's the first thing we need to know? There's suffering. 
Buddha saw it, right? He saw it with the old man and the ill man and the corpse and the ascetic. And so uh, there is suffering. <clears throat> the next part, the truth of the cause of suffering is desire and ignorance are the cause of suffering. Maybe here's a good way to, to put it into a Christian vernacular. The main problem with the world is coveting. The main problem with the world is coveting. You want something that you can't have, so you become dissatisfied. That's kind of what to desire and ignorance are in Buddhism when it comes to suffering. The third, the truth of the end of suffering is this, that one can end suffering through nirvana. And then the fourth, the truth of the path that leads to the end of suffering is that one can achieve enlightenment. Okay, so let me just kind of summarize what that means. <clears throat> here's, here's the idea. If you're just looking at Buddhism, here's what you need to know. There is suffering. What is the cause of suffering? Answer, desire, and ignorance. We, we need to have some good news though. It's not just that they're suffering and that's it. The suffering can be ended. That's the third point. And then the fourth point, how do we actually end the suffering? And we do it through reaching uh, enlightenment. And to do that, you have to follow what is called the noble eightfold path. So if you're keeping up with numbers, it's like one, two, three, four. And when you open four up, there's eight more, okay? And this uh, noble eightfold path is where you conduct your entire life around trying to reach nirvana. It includes right understanding, right thought and intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Now we could break all those down, but it's basically just saying everything in your life, from your speech, to your thoughts, to your actions, all need to be centered on trying to reach enlightenment and trying to get rid of desire and uh, ignorance, okay? Now, there's some other revered text in uh, Buddhism. Again, they don't all agree on which texts are, uh, you know, really the, the canonical ones. Uh, the Four Noble Truths is the big one, but there are other revered texts. One is called the Tipitaka. I promise you that's probably not how that's pronounced, but that's what it looks like, and it sounds fun. It sounds kind of like something you'd say at a, at a Hawaiian barbecue. These texts, known as the Three Baskets, are thought to be the earliest collection of Buddhist writings. Okay? So in addition to this main central thing around the Four Noble Truths, these, uh, this, uh, these other texts are very early sayings uh, and important Buddhist writings. Uh, the sutras, you might have heard of sutras. There are more than 2,000 sutras, which are sacred teachings embraced mainly by Mahayana Buddhists. Mahayana Buddhism, uh, one of their big things, they're like the elite. They're like the, the Navy SEALs of Buddhism. They're real big on what is canonical in, uh, in Buddhism. And then you have something called the Book of the Dead. This is a, a, a text from Tibet that describes the stages of death in detail, okay? So those are some important texts to know about in Buddhism. Now let's talk about types of Buddhism. There is Theravada Buddhism, which is prevalent in Thailand, Sri Lanka, Cambodia, Laos, and Burma. There is Mahayana Buddhism, which is prevalent in China, Japan, Taiwan, Korea, Singapore, and Vietnam. Mahayana Buddhists are, like I said, the elite. Have you ever seen that uh, video or an image of that monk in Vietnam who catches himself on fire to protest the Vietnam War and uh, also Christian influence in Vietnam? And he lights himself, you know, covers himself with gasoline and then lights himself on fire and just meditates as he burns. And he doesn't move a muscle. I don't know how tough you are, but you're probably not that tough. That guy is a Mahayana Buddhist. Again, they are the, uh, they are the uh, super tough, very concerned with uh, you know, what is canonical and that kind of stuff, sect of Buddhism. And then you have Tibetan Buddhism, obviously prevalent in Tibet, Nepal, Mongolia, Bhutan, and parts of Russia and Northern India. Now those are just some big ones based upon geographic location. <clears throat> Other types of Buddhism are Zen, Nirvana, Taoist, and Bon, including others. They all consider, so all those groups I mentioned, they all consider themselves Buddhists, 
but they differ in certain practices and interpretations of Buddha's work. Okay, so those are things to keep in mind. Again, very similar like Jeff said uh, last week when it comes to uh, Hinduism, that you can be considered Hindu even though you have a bunch of different beliefs from other Hindus. In the same way, you can be considered Buddhist even if your beliefs differ from a lot of other Buddhists. This is very different than creedal religions. Islam and Christianity, for example, are creedal religions. You have to hold certain facts, certain orthodox defined standards to be one of those religions. That's not the case when it comes to Buddhism. Well, now I think it's time to talk about the coolest Buddhist, Shaolin monks. I actually added this section in the notes and titled it, The Coolest Buddhist, Shaolin Monks. Let's talk about Shaolin monks. You're probably familiar with them. Shaolin monks are Buddhist warrior monks that are known for their incredible mental and physical strength. You've probably heard of Shaolin Kung Fu. Uh, Shaolin Kung Fu is probably not the most helpful martial art to learn in an age of guns and knives where someone just shoots you when you're doing all your sick karate, but it is beautiful. It takes a long time to learn. It's really, really cool. When you watch a lot of movies, whether it be The Matrix or whatever, they'll, they'll have some elements of Shaolin uh, Kung Fu, and uh, so it looks really cool fighting monkey style and all this kind of stuff, but uh, you've probably heard of Shaolin Kung Fu. These are the monks that promote that, practice that, and do that. If you've ever seen uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, uh, there are uh, elements of that in, uh, in there as well. Now, these guys are super serious. They are, if uh, Mahayan uh, Buddhists are the, uh, you know, the elite, the Navy SEALs of Buddhism, these guys are SEAL Team 6. These guys are DevGuru. They're the elite of the elite when it comes to awesomeness. They enter the monastery at the age of three, and they don't originally get a master, right? You can be like this rejected disciple, of this group, a master has to come and select you. So the masters there at the temple will walk around and select kids that have prowess and select kids that seem to have a lot of potential. And those are the ones that uh, they think are worth training. But some of them they don't think are worth training. So just because you're in doesn't mean you are in. Uh, They have incredible mental focus. A study done by Harvard showed that they could control their body temperature just by meditating, several degrees. They actually put wet sheets on the monks and the monks could make their bodies so hot that it dried the sheets just through meditation, okay? So these guys have a lot of focus. If anyone's ever said focus, if you're drifting out right now as I'm teaching this lesson, you're a terrible Shaolin monk, okay? These guys are serious. They are focused and they are dialed in. They have also done incredible feats of physical strength, including resting their entire body on spears and throwing needles through panes of glass. You can watch that on YouTube. It is terrifying and awesome. They'll take a needle and throw it through a solid pane of glass and pop a balloon. I don't know how you do it, but whatever they're doing, I think there's some uh, openings as a pitcher for the Texas Rangers that these guys need to get on that train because if you can throw a needle, you can throw a ball, okay? Now, how Christians can engage with Buddhists. Let's look at the next section here. How how, how can we as Christians engage with Buddhists? I wanna spend a lot of time here because I think this is really, really important. One of the things you're doing in trying to evangelize lost people, especially people that have a different worldview from you, is that you're trying to find some common ground to start the conversation. And then what you're trying to do is you're trying to move in the right direction and pointing them to Christ. You need to find some common ground, but then you don't just need to stay in the common ground. It's not like you and they have the same religion. You then need to move them to what needs to change. So what I wanna do is I wanna talk about where we agree with Buddhism and where we as Christians disagree with Buddhism. By the way, this is the approach that, the, uh, that uh, is taken in the book of Acts at Mars Hill, right? Where the apostle Paul uses pagan philosophy and pagan literature as a jumping off point to talk about the gospel. 
He doesn't use those things as analytical tools. I heard somebody say that recently when it comes to critical race theory, that we should use that as an analytical tool. That is not what Paul does. He uses it as an evangelistic tool. He doesn't agree with it or use it as a way to view mankind, which would warp his theology. Rather, he uses it as a jumping off point to actually engage them with the gospel. So here are some things that we agree with the Buddhists on. Number one, Something is broken in the world. This is, a, this is a point of commonality. You can sit down with somebody who's a Buddhist, if you have a Buddhist neighbor or coworker or whatever, and you can say, here's something we agree with. The world is broken. The world is not now how it was meant to be. And that's something they can sympathize with because they agree with. The, the whole thing they're trying to get rid of is suffering. Number two, where we agree, suffering is indeed bad. It's not just morally neutral like the atheists would teach. It's just what happened. It actually is bad. Number three, worldly pleasures are fleeting and cannot ultimately satisfy. That is a great point. We as Christians are not called to be ascetics. When Paul condemns false teachers, he doesn't just condemn, you know, those that are going into the excesses. He he spends, I feel like, more of his time critiquing those that are saying, don't have all these good things from God. Be legalistic. That's the kind of ascetics that Paul is constantly critiquing in the New Testament. Uh, But we agree that worldly pleasures are fleeting and cannot ultimately satisfy. God has given you a family, that's a good gift, it doesn't ultimately satisfy. God has given you money, it's a good gift, it doesn't ultimately satisfy. So Christians and Buddhists can both agree that worldly pleasures leave us empty. They don't ultimately satisfy. They satisfy for a time, sometimes they satisfy a little bit but leave us with shame, but they don't ultimately satisfy. Number four, moderation should be pursued in neutral matters. So there's a game I play with my son. It's called, whether you should do it, always, Never or in moderation. That's the game. Always, never, and in moderation. And I will ask him something like, loving God. Should you do that always, never, or in moderation? And the answer is always. Loving other people. Always, never, or in moderation. Always. Sinning. Never. You should never sin. Things that are good, you should do all the time. Things that are bad, you should never do. But then I give him categories like eating sweets. Well, the answer is moderation. It's not that you should never have sweets or that you should only have sweets. You should have it in moderation. And so I'm trying to teach him these different things that good things pursue all the way, bad things stay away from, but neutral things, typically the answer in Christian thinking is moderation. So I asked him this one recently and I thought his response was really smart. Uh, I said, okay, what about drinking alcohol, drinking wine or beer or whatever it is? And he said, never. And I said, no, not never, but in moderation. But then he goes, but I'm a kid. And I said, okay, you're right, buddy. Okay, for you, yes, never for you. That's right, you're very smart. Yes, as a kid, never, but when you get older, in moderation. And so uh, we would agree with them that, uh, that many things, especially neutral matters, should be pursued in moderation. Another thing where we agree, that one can change their life by reshaping their mind, okay? You can't save yourself that way. Salvation is a gift from God. We're not Gnostics. You can't reason your way into salvation. But when you change your thinking, it will change your action, If every time you have an anxious thought, you kick it out and you think of something else, you'll be less anxious. If every time you have an insecure thought about what other people think of you and you say, forget that, my value's in Christ, and you do that for years, you'll find yourself being a happier person because you can change the way you act and to some extent, your joy based on whether or not you're taking thoughts captive, submitting all thoughts to Christ, etc. Now, what should Christians think about meditation? What should Christians think about meditation? Well, it just depends on what you mean. Christians should not partake in Buddhist meditation where we are trying to reach salvation by mentally attaining this higher state separate from our bodies and separate from the world. That's not how we do meditation. But Christians may think deeply on things. There's a way to do Christian meditation where you're either just clearing your mind where you're not thinking of uh, stuff, trying to reach this higher state. You're literally just trying to teach your mind how to focus 
Or the more common way, the way that the meditation is typically done throughout church history is by, fo- by filling your mind with thoughts. It's not trying to get rid of the physical, get rid of the world, get rid of problems, but rather it's filling your mind with godly thoughts. It's thinking about how great Christ is. It's thinking about how forgiven you are. It's thinking about how loved you are. It's thinking about how everything's going to be okay. Where you meditate on scripture and you meditate on God's promises, that type of meditation is absolutely great for Christians. I actually feel like that's something we as Christians don't do very much. We read, we think, we might journal or write a little bit, we talk to other people, but very few times do we just sit down and say, for the next 10 minutes, I'm just gonna think about all the good things that the Bible promises me. And I think if we did that, we would actually walk in a bit more joy. Christians and Buddhists agree on some ethical issues. For example, we both believe that stealing, lying, sexual misconduct, and drug use are bad, and we agree that helping others is good. That's something Christians would agree with and something Buddhists would agree with. Now, that's where we agree. Where do we disagree? Where do we disagree? Number one, sin, not suffering, is the main problem. To say it even better, sin is why there even is suffering. So the Buddhist sees that there's suffering in the world, and that's kind of where they start the paradigm. What we would say is the reason there's suffering in the world is because of sin. You can't get rid of suffering or deal with the problem of suffering until you've dealt with the problem of sin, okay? So sin is why there even is suffering. That's why the focus has to be on atonement and forgiveness, not on reaching this higher state of enlightenment. Number two, death and reincarnation do not have the last say. Resurrection is our hope and everyone can have it. You see, a Buddhist has no hope in how long it will take for them to be reincarnated and then finally reach nirvana where they can rest. It could reach, take a long time to reach nirvana, Okay. But in Christianity, death and reincarnation do not have the last say, nor does some transcendent state. The Bible teaches that you will be not reincarnated, but resurrected. And it will be bodily, physical, just like Jesus' resurrection. And there's a new heavens and new earth that the eternal state looks a lot like the Garden of Eden. It's not just this floaty cloud place where we're a bunch of souls. Number three, karma. Karma. Sometimes good things happen even when you're bad. And sometimes bad things happen even when you're good. Read the book of Job. The book of Job is one giant, you know, spitting upon of the idea of karma. We all see that the idea of karma is false as it's traditionally interpreted, right? That if you do good things, good things will happen. If you do bad things, bad things will happen. We all know people who are absolute saints and their lives are terrible and they've got cancer and they lost their job and things are really hard. We also know other people who are dirtbags. They are just terrible scoundrels and they are living it up like kings. They're wealthy and they're doing whatever they want and they have power and prestige. That's the idea of karma. Listen, the very idea of grace goes against the idea of karma. Grace isn't getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. The whole Christian gospel says, if you wanna do karma, you've only sinned against God and you only get condemnation. What Christianity says is that there is grace, that God has earned it for you. Number four, we cannot achieve salvation by our own efforts, including our mental efforts. So the way that salvation is obtained in Buddhism is through meditation, focus, right living, right thought, right intention, et cetera, and you reach this higher state through your own action. So specifically mental action. Well, in Christianity, it's by trusting the God-man. It's by putting your faith in Christ. It's not something you have to strive for, as Romans will say. Do not say that I have to go up to heaven to get this or go down into the depths, but rather he's near you, right? 
that the words of salvation are near you, in your mouth, that if you confess Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. And so there's not this striving like you have in Buddhism. Christianity, salvation is a gift that's received by faith because of what Christ has done. By the way, I think there's a little pastoral lesson for some of you in here. Some of you don't believe that you're saved, even though you are saved and you are a Christian, because you don't think that you believed hard enough. You think, okay, I asked Jesus to save me, but did I really mean it enough? Did I really have enough faith? Was I really repentant enough for my sin? And what you're doing is, in that moment, you're being a little too Buddhist. You're thinking that you're gonna be saved by your mental effort. You're not saved by your faith or your repentance. You're saved by Christ, okay? Yes, repent and believe, but it's Christ who is doing the saving. You're not saved by the goodness or the quality or the strength of your repentance or faith, or you could never be saved. It's not that faith is like the new good work that God does accept, no. Faith is simply empty hands. It's simply empty hands, and God is the one who does the saving, Number five, we need a savior to get rid of the suffering once and for all. Listen to this. Buddhism only promises to help some individuals get out of suffering, but it doesn't actually end all suffering. So if you are one of the few Buddhists who also reaches enlightenment and becomes a Buddha yourself, you can have no suffering, despite the fact that you'll die and the worldview is wrong, and so there is still suffering and death. It doesn't deal with suffering as a category. It doesn't say one day there will be a day where the righteous don't suffer at all, that, uh, that, hell will be, that Hades will be thrown into hell kind of idea. And so, uh, so keep that in mind. Number six, idolatry is sin. Idolatry is sin. Having statues in and of itself, like art, is not sinful. Having paintings in and of itself is not sinful. You uh, should not have paintings of the Father of the Spirit, uh, but most throughout church history, most have said it's okay to have a painting of Jesus because he did become incarnate. You are seeing his humanity, not his deity. Although a lot of people in the Puritan tradition didn't like that either. Uh, but what Christians cannot do is idolatry. We should not be bowing before statues. We should not be uh, worshiping statues, etc., like you have sometimes in certain forms of Buddhism. Number seven, the world exists because of a personal God who is a trinity. That's a big one. I mean, the, the biggest thing you can give your Buddhist coworker is here's the biggest th- difference between your worldview and mine, that there is a Trinitarian God who made everything that we rebelled against and be, because of that, he sent the second person of the Trinity to die for our sins, to live the life we should have lived, to be resurrected so that we might have eternal life. That's the big one, okay? And then number eight, humans have a soul. We're not just continuous change. We do continuously change as humans. We're not God, we're not impassable. But we, uh, we have this inner essence. We have, humans have a soul and we will be judged for our actions. We will be judged for our actions. It's not just that you get reincarnated into something great, like a human, or something that's bad, like a ghost or hell, but rather, we have a soul and we will be judged for our actions. We will stand before God to give an account for all the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad, the Bible says. And the problem is, is that uh, there's a lot of bad stuff happening there. And God doesn't demand that you be good. He demands that you be perfect, which is why our hope is only that those sins have paid in full written over them, all right? Have paid in full written over them because of what Christ has done. Well, that's Buddhism in a nutshell. Again, forgive me for terrible uh, pronunciations of these terms. Uh, If you wanna see how they're spelled, it will be in the notes and stuff that's online. And then next week, we will deal with Judaism, which I am fascinated by, really excited to teach on that topic. Uh, I think a lot of Christians don't understand Judaism and what they believe, and so I think this will be really, really helpful uh, for understanding that worldview and even for understanding some of your Christianity. So let me pray for us, and then we will be done. 
Almighty God, we thank you for your mercy and we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this chance to get to learn about a different worldview. We pray that you would bring some Buddhists into our life, that we might be able to share the gospel with them, that we might have friends that maybe uh, grew up this way or interested in this worldview, that we might be able to say, hey, there's some things we agree with, but mainly we disagree, and let me show you why. And we might point them to what they're ultimately looking for, that Jesus is the only one that provides what they're really searching for in nirvana, what they're really searching for in becoming enlightened or awakened. We love you and thank you in Christ's name, amen.